Thanks for pressing play. Real dialogue podcasts are the only media for unedited, unfettered, radically transparent, real dialogues. As opposed to highly produced, overly edited, and surface-level soundbody interviews that we normally get fed. As a matter of fact, our guest today was recently on CBS 60 Minutes. And on this episode, we go deep. We go where traditional television could and would never go. And specifically... We get into the war in Ukraine and where all of this might end. What cyber terrorism capability does Russia really have? What is the United States cyber capability and ability to defend? Why our guest thinks Russia will eventually lose and how this war will likely end and what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and Russia right more and a ton more to talk about. You see, our guest today is Dmitry Alperovich. He's one of America's top cybersecurity experts, and he was one of the first public figures to declare that Putin was actually planning this attack back in December 2021. Many of Dmitry's predi- predictions have been eerily prescient. Dmitry is on the U.S. Homeland Security Advisory Council. He's the co-founder and former chief technology officer of $50 billion market cap CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike is considered to be one of the most important cybersecurity firms in the world. As a matter of fact, a leading analyst just named them the leader in what's called endpoint security. Dimitri was awarded the prestigious Federal 100 Award for his contributions to the U.S. Federal Information Security. And in 2013, he was selected as one of MIT Review's top 35 innovators under 35. And he has a list of achievements and awards that would choke a horse. Today, Dimitri is widely viewed as one of the top security experts in the world, and he is today the chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator. And I got to tell you, his podcast, Geopolitics Decanted by Silverado, is a must listen, particularly if you care about what's going on broadly in the world. And get this, Dimitri is a Russian-born U.S. citizen. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different, the number one real dialogue podcast for business leaders. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Dimitri, thank you so much. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. Now, I was riveted seeing you on 60 Minutes, and uh, one of my complaints about television is this phrase we hear all the time, well, we just have to leave it there. And at the end of the conversation with you, you said something that stopped me in my tracks, which was the United States has the ability right now to take Russia off the Internet. We do. Is that correct? Yes, we do. We have the ability to do it temporarily. And we have, and this is much more complicated, but we also have the ability to do it permanently. Now, both these steps are provocative and escalatory. So what I was arguing for in that 60 Minutes piece is that in response to a major attack on the United States in cyberspace from Russia that the Biden administration is now warning us about, that the Russians may be preparing to launch an attack like this, perhaps on our energy sector, maybe on our financial sector as well in response to these major sanctions that we have instituted 
on the Russian economy. And if they do launch those attacks, in my opinion, we need to be very thoughtful about our response. We need to make sure that we achieve escalation dominance in that we stop those attacks dead in their tracks, that we send a very strong message to Moscow that this is not going to be tolerated, this is not going to be acceptable. And one way to do that is to send them a signal of what life without internet could look like in Russia for an hour or two. And that, in my opinion, is a much better uh, way to deter future attacks than engaging in a tit-for-tat retaliation where they hit our energy infrastructure, we hit theirs, they respond, and then you know we get into a contest of who can destroy more of each other's infrastructure. That is highly dangerous, highly escalatory, and is unlikely to end well. Thank you for that. Now, if we have the ability to take them off the internet, and we do that, how could they attack our energy infrastructure or attack a hospital as they've done in the past or a railway system or whatever, if we've taken them off the internet? How, 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 excuse my ignorance, but how does that work? Well, the same way that the North Koreans are able to execute attacks from outside the country where they send people out to China, to Malaysia to launch attacks. So you don't have to be in country, of course, to, uh, to launch those types of attacks. So this is not really about stopping the attack. It's more about making sure that you send a strong signal about what will happen to the Russian economy without internet connectivity, which would be absolutely devastating to them because like any major country these days, really almost any country, they're as dependent on this digital resource as we are for pretty much every sector of the economy. Now, theoretically, let's say I'll just make up a scenario. We shut down their internet. They now want to attack us in a retaliatory way. What's another country where they might have the cyber capabilities to launch an attack from if we'd taken Russia itself off the internet? Well, they don't need the cyber capability in those countries. They just need to be able to send people to those countries and get an internet link. That's pretty much all that's required. And they can do that from you know, Belarus, from Kazakhstan, from any of the you know, near abroad countries. They can go as far as Middle East or Turkey or what have you. So uh, Africa, that, that won't be a problem for them. And, and by the way, again, I'm arguing for this as a response to an attack on the United States, not a preemptive strike against Russia before they launch any type of attack, because I do think that would be escalatory and may actually invite an attack, but to send them a strong signal that this is what is going to come if you continue to try to destroy our critical infrastructure through cyber attacks. And then let's say they tried to launch a cyber attack from Belarus, by way of example. If we have the ability to take Russia off the internet, do we then also have the ability to take Belarus? Like, do we start a game of whack-a-mole where... You do it in Russia, we take you off the internet. You do it in Belarus, we take you off the internet. You do it in Syria, we take you out. You know, is there a game of whack-a-mole that ends up happening here? Or how does in a situation where the U.S. does take Russia off the internet for more than an hour to spook them uh, and they respond from some other country, how does a scenario like this in your mind, Dimitri, uh, potentially play out? So again, the goal of the internet shutdown is not to stop cyber attacks. Uh, that is an impossibility because they can launch them from any place and we're not going to go around the world shutting down countries from the internet. That's not an interest in the United States. The goal is to demonstrate the type of effect we can have on their economy if they continue to, to execute those attacks from wherever they may launch them, from Russia or elsewhere. So that would be the, the core of the message, not to try to thwart the cyber activity that's emanating from Russia. I see. 
Now, one of the things that since the war has started in the beginning of the war, uh, there was a lot of discussion about Russia and what they would do from a cybersecurity point of view, both in Ukraine and the Western world. It seems like that there hasn't been a lot of reporting about uh, things that Russia has been doing in a material way in the cyber world, on the Internet, etc. Can you give me a sense for what you are aware of that Russia has and has not been doing since the beginning of the attack on Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. So so I, I think that a lot of people had unwildly unrealistic expectations about the power of cyber attacks. Cyber is a fantastic weapon for gray zone conflict. When you have two states or, or more that are engaged in confrontation that is below the level of armed conflict, so their militaries are not pounding uh, each other, but you still want to exert pressure and try to coerce another country or punish them for doing something that you do not like. That's where cyber is really a perfect tool because it's deniable, because you can execute it remotely and you can have an impact on a country. But once you have the full range of kinetic weapons at your disposal, uh, missiles, ground infantry, personnel, um, air power, and so forth, you're going to default to that to achieve most of your objectives, not cyber. So I never believed that cyber was going to be a huge part of the Russian campaign. Uh, I thought that they would go after communication systems, and they actually had done that. One of the, the attacks that has not gotten a lot of attention was a hack of a U.S.-based satellite provider called Viasat that uh, has a subsidiary that provides uh, satellite communication services to Eastern Europe and uh, particularly the Ukraine military. And the Russians had actually hacked that satellite provider or actors that are believed to be Russian. Uh, the U.S. government has not yet made public attribution of that attack. And they were able to essentially cripple uh, satellite modems, thousands of them that the Ukrainians were using in the first hours of the war. And my understanding is that that actually did have a significant impact on their ability to communicate in those initial hours and potentially even had operational impact as well. And that's, of course, where cyber has usefulness in a military campaign. You can't target kinetically thousands of satellite modems that are distributed all over the country. You don't know where they are. Uh, it's very difficult. Cyber, because of the nature of the, the medium and, and the way you can easily scale up uh, distributed attacks, can be used for that. But when it comes to shutting down traditional infrastructure, power, traditional telecommunication services, media, that's where you've seen the Russians much more focused on traditional kinetic attacks. On the media side in particular, they've targeted TV stations, they've targeted TV antennas to try to shut off the ability of the Ukrainian government to communicate with its people. And that's much, much easier to do than cyber do, doing cyber attack. It also has much more long-lasting effects when you can crater some, something. You know that it's not coming back up in a way that a cyber attack would be potentially mitigated by the Ukrainians. Do they have the ability, or early in the war, we saw uh, anonymous sending, I, I believe it was, am I remembering this right, Dimitri? Were they sending faxes to people? Wasn't there a hack where Anonymous was sending messages into Russia telling them the Russians are being lied to? I seem to remember it was a fax machine attack. Am I, am I, was that too many whiskeys ago or is that, do you remember that? I mean, there's been a number of hacks by a variety of different groups, including Anonymous of Russian infrastructure. There's been a lot of leaking of uh, databases and private communications coming out of Russia. 
that obviously is creating a lot of annoyances for the Russian state, but is is not strategically impacting them in any way that would uh, prevent them from prosecuting this war. I see. And do you believe the Russians have the ability to hack into the Ukrainian media infrastructure and start spreading Russian propaganda to the Ukrainian people? Can they take it that far? Well, they have done it uh, in the past. Uh, in 2014 in particular, they had hacked uh, both uh, media organizations, but particularly the Central uh, Election Commission during the presidential election that was taking place in uh, that year and actually attempted to modify the result that would be shown on the website and would be propagated through the media. But, you know, th- those types of things, and they may still execute them, they don't have as much of an effect as you might think, because it's easy, of course, to identify that propaganda, revert it, issue correction. So uh, it has not had traditionally a significant psychological impact. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I've not seen the Russians waste a lot of their time on this. Interesting. So in in prior wars that were, if we could call them analog as opposed to digital, where you had scenarios where uh, allies were dropping printouts of, of pieces of paper that say you're being lied to and this and that and the other and so forth. We're sort of trying analog ways, if I could put it that way, Dimitri, to get the other side, so to speak, into countries. The digital equivalent of that uh, you don't see as being particularly useful right now for Russia? I don't think even the analog equi- uh, equivalent of that works really well, either on Russia or in Ukraine. I mean, yes, they're trying to pump propaganda to uh, the population, particularly in the occupied areas where they're activating Channel One, Russian state television in those regions that they've been able to take over. They're telling people don't look at telegram channels that are operated by Ukrainian government. They're spreading propaganda. It doesn't work. And the reverse is not working as well. So the Russian public is able to access the internet, of course. They're able to access a lot of sites that are not yet blocked by the Russian government. And even those that are blocked, uh, they can easily get to by using VPNs. They just don't want to. They're living in their bubble. They want to access information that they prefer to access about how Russia is winning the war and how this war is being prosecuted to to destroy Nazis in Ukraine, as President Putin claims, obviously an, an nonsensical claim. And they're not interested in accessing Western information that would be contradictory to that. Now, the flip side also seems to be true. Now, I, I, I'm a layman. You know, I've been using technology for more than 35 years, but I'm not the engineer that you are, far from it. And I go and I try to find Russian state media content on the internet because I want to see it. I want to hear it. I'm trying to see if somebody translating it uh, simultaneously on YouTube would be very nice, for example. And uh, maybe I, my Googling skills aren't very good, which I could accept, but I have a hard time finding Uh, Russian state-sponsored media in Santa Cruz, California. Am I missing something or are are we being manipulated? Is this content being taken out of our ability to get to it? It is. Uh, So one of the things that you have seen as a response to this invasion, illegal invasion by Russia of Ukraine, is a response from tech companies taking off channels, uh, Russian media channels, off sites like YouTube and others, and deplatforming them effectively from many social media companies because, you know, on the grounds that they're spreading propaganda. But, you know, if you try hard enough, you can still access it. Uh, you can still see it on Twitter. You can still see access it on Telegram. And, uh, of course, the Russians now have their own equivalent platforms like the Contact, which is their version of Facebook, uh, 
uh, uh, YouTube is their equivalent of YouTube. So I, I'm, uh, you know, as a keen w- watcher of Russia, I'm certainly following a lot of those um, media channels and, and uh, watching what they're saying to their own public. Well, thank you for doing that. Maybe you could tell me what, what they are saying. And so if I were to turn on state-sponsored media right now, whether it was on the internet or on television, and of course, if I was a Russian speaker, which of course I'm not, but uh, let's assume I could understand it. What are the kinds of things that the Russian people are being told? So they're told a few things. They're told that they're fighting Nazis in Ukraine, that uh, much of Ukraine has been brainwashed into supporting anti-Russian propaganda, in their words, that uh, the Russian military is prosecuting a righteous war to liberate the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine and save it from the Nazis and to protect Russia. They're being told that Ukraine planned to invade the Donbass before this war, which of course is also false. They've been told that Ukraine was planning to build biological and potentially even nuclear weapons in order to attack Russia. So they've been fed all of this propaganda, and, and they're also being told that uh, Russia is uh, making a lot of progress winning this war. An interesting thing seems to have happened, and I know you have talked about this. By the way, I, I love your podcast. And so, Thank you. and as a side note, you know, it's interesting, uh, as somebody who consumes legacy media, digital media, social media, and obviously podcast media, when the war broke out, I was interstitialing between the major networks in the United States, the BBC, Al Jazeera, and uh, mostly Twitter, a little bit of Facebook, but mostly Twitter. And I was struck, Dimitri, at the time that Twitter was crushing legacy media, because it's one thing to hear some talking head on Pick Your Network. It's a whole other thing to, to see a video from someone's home where they throw a Molotov cocktail out the window at a tank and it blows up. But I'm curious what your experience of sort of consuming, if you will, news and media in the digital world is versus the uh, legacy kind of media and how you think about that. Yeah, most of my information is coming directly from the front lines, uh, from my connections, you know, in Russia and Ukraine. A lot of it is coming from Telegram channels where you can observe both sides pushing their own propaganda, look at the videos, look at what's actually going on. You know, as someone that does quite a bit of uh, legacy media, if you will, cable news and 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 so forth. Uh, you are very stations. handsome, so you're 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 perfect <laughs> for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of my big frustrations, of course, is that you don't get much time to actually dive deeply into these really, really complex issues. It's not black and white in terms of, you know, Ukraine is winning, Russia is losing. It's much more complex than that. And, you know, you get a two or three minute soundbite at most when you go on these stations to try to articulate what is happening, what is likely to happen. And that's very, very difficult to do in such a short period of time. And and sometimes I wonder because these channels are 24 seven and, and, you know, they have so much airtime available and then you you come on and they're like, you have two minutes and then we have to run, run to what, (laughs) what is more important and why can't you dedicate 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to this discussion of really important issues. Why do you keep repeating the same soundbite over and over again? I don't understand that. I'm not a media 
uh, commercial media. So perhaps they, they, they know much better about how to make money, but that doesn't seem like they're serving their audience to, to the best extent. That's why I prefer, well, not prefer, but uh, I often go on PBS NewsHour, and that's where you can have a much longer and deeper discussion of these issues than sometimes you can on cable news. Well, to your point where we started this discussion on your comment on CBS 60 Minutes that the U.S. has the capability to take take Russia down off the Internet, that's where they ended the conversation with you. That's right. And I'm literally sitting there in my living room, Dimitri, yelling, going, hey, hey, fuck, ask him about that. I want to know more about that. And that's literally when I emailed you. I, You know, we had it taped. We were watching it real time. But at that point, I was like... Where's Dimitri? Luckily enough, I don't know why we were connected already on LinkedIn, but we were. And, and, and I was like, I, if he wa- if he's willing to talk to me about this, I want to talk to him about this. Well, and, and the irony is, of course, I spent over an hour with Bill Whitaker, who had asked all kinds of really interesting questions. And we dived deeply into all of this. So they had all the content. But, you know, within the constraints of the broadcast, it's obviously a 15 minute segment. And they had a lot to get through uh, and uh, showcase my friends, Jenny Sterley and Rob. Lee and uh, Lisa Monaco as well. So, you know, I got a two, two and a half minute time slot to get my points across. And that's very difficult within those time constraints, right? That's why podcasts like yours exist. And that's why you know, I'm doing mine because uh, you can get into these discussions and really showcase all elements of, of the discussion and the debate. Fantastic. So let's go there. What are the things that you talked to 60 Minutes about that you wished people knew that they left on the cutting room floor, Dimitri? Well, a big part of it was uh, really our strategic priority here vis-a-vis Russia uh, when it comes to cyber attacks that they may potentially launch. You know, from their perspective, and it's important oftentimes to put yourselves in the shoes of your adversaries, not to sympathize with them, not to go native as you will, if you will, um, as some people do, unfortunately, but to understand where they're coming from so that you can craft the best strategies to confront them. And from Russia's perspective, this is what's actually happening, right? They've picked a fight with a neighborhood kid in an alley somewhere, the analogy of of, of what's going on. And here we are, the United States of America, walking by in this alley, and all of a sudden we just punch Russia. This is how they're viewing this conflict. I'm not saying that this is what's actually going on. But their view is, what are you doing? This is our region. This is, you know, Ukraine. Obviously, they view it as their own uh, territory, even though it is its own country and has been for many centuries. They deny all that. So they're saying, we're just picking up a local fight here. It's none of your business. And here you are coming in and instituting really unprecedented sanctions against such a global economy as Russia is in response to something that's none of your business. That's how they view th- things in Moscow. So from that perspective, attacking us is a natural response, not a provocation, but a response to what we have done to them. We obviously have a very different view that we are responding to an illegal invasion of another country, an attempt to change borders, the Russians committing war crimes in Ukraine as they are, and we're completely justified in in cutting them off economically and diplomatically from the world economy and, and the world community. But that's not how they see it. So the reason it's important to understand their mindset is to make sure that we achieve the objective that we have, which is to make the tax stop, right? That we do not suffer devastating impacts to our critical infrastructure. And if we get into a tit for tat, they hit our 
energy storage facility. So we hit Rosneft, uh, their big oil company in response. That is highly escalatory because they will see that as a provocation and an escalation in a way that we may not. And the goal is to, in my mind, achieve escalation dominance and say, here you are trying to attack our critical infrastructure. We're not going to do the same to you. And by the way, we're actually very constrained in our ability to do so, not technically, but legally, because of course we abide by the rules of armed conflict. We have thousands of lawyers approving every operation, not quite thousands, but lots and lots of them. And anything that would impact civilians, that would impact uh, innocent people, uh, would not get approved. So our ability to do the same to them is actually limited by the way we fight, that they're not constrained by. But to send them a clear message that, you know what, instead of doing that, we're actually going to go much deeper and we're going to show you what life without internet connectivity or severely disrupted internet connectivity could look like and the impact to your economy. And unless you stop, we're going to make that permanent. That is a, a better way to end this tit for tat and stop the escalation in its tracks. So I want to make sure, Dimitri, I understand exactly what you're saying. You, you think that the United States of America should take down the Russian internet for an hour or two, or something along those lines, as a way to say, hey, listen, enough's enough. A, you got to stop the war in Ukraine. And B, if you think about hitting our infrastructure, we're just going to take your whole country off the internet. Is that what you're saying? Or I want to make sure I understand exactly what you're saying. Not, not, okay. not quite. So, so this would not be in response to the war in Ukraine. This would purely be a response to their attacks on us and their attempts to destroy our critical infrastructure. And the signal would be stop this right now or we're going to go much, much f further. Ukraine is a different issue. It is much more core to their interests. And uh, I don't believe that they would stop the war if we were to shut off their internet. So it's important not to conflate the two. But this would be purely as a retaliatory measure against an attack on the United States. Got it. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the use of the internet and uh, smartphones and uh, mobile technology. And we've read things like the Russians don't have secure communications lines in many cases. And so troops on the ground are using standard, uh, whether it's Wi-Fi hotspots or, or uh, cell, cell technology, and that the Ukrainians are actually able to listen to them and figure out positions and movements and so forth. Is this accurate reporting, Dmitry? It is. I mean, it speaks volumes to how unprepared the Russians were to launch this war, in part because of the secrecy and the paranoia of Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, imagine if we were invading Iraq in 2003 and President Bush at the time, George W. Bush, right before launching that invasion, had told Rumsfeld that we're invading Iraq, but don't tell anyone about it. Plan it all yourself, right? That is almost, not quite, but almost what happened here in the case of Russia. They had not the, told their troops that they're invading, which is obviously causing them all kinds of morale issues. Logistics weren't ready for, for an invasion, which, by the way, an invasion of the second largest country in Europe. You know, the only country that's bigger is Russia itself. Huge country, huge military, lots of Western weapons. And they were not told that they were going to invade, right? The Russian troops were. Some of the generals, obviously, in the Russian general staff were involved in the planning. But even most of the ministers, it's now very clear, in the Russian Security Council and in the cabinet, had no idea this was going to happen. This is why they were so unprepared economically. 
They had $300 billion uh, more, actually, in uh, foreign reserves held overseas that we've now frozen. If their economic people had known that this was coming, they would have pulled it back into Russia and China, where we wouldn't be able to touch it. But um, Putin insisted on keeping this very close hold, uh, even though it's clear now that he's been planning this for at least a year, if not longer. And I think we have impacted his calculus in many ways because of the Biden administration's really brilliant policy of declassifying very sensitive intelligence in the lead up to the war and even now about what Russia may be planning to do, which only accelerated the paranoia that Putin already has. This is, of course, not just the former KGB agent, but also a counterintelligence agent in the KGB. So his goal uh, for part of his career in that uh, intelligence agency was to root out spies. And you already have an agency that uh, sees spies everywhere. And uh, when he's reading about his most secret plans in the New York Times or the Washington Post, that only makes him sort of circle the wagons and uh, keep uh, even more people out of his thinking and out of his planning to reduce the likelihood of leaks. And uh, that, no question, impacted them operationally. To your specific questions on communications, why are they using cell phones to communicate? And the Ukrainians have done a great job, not just of intercepting them, but limiting their ability to do so by blocking off very early in the war Russian phone numbers from Ukrainian telco networks. So they had to resort to stealing phones from civilians to actually use them. And of course, what happens is civilians immediately report the phone numbers to the Ukrainians, who are then able to listen to those communications. Uh, very, very brilliant use of civilian population to to engage in intelligence collection but the reasons that russians have not been able to do uh to use their secure radios effectively and by the way they have them uh, it's not that they don't have the, uh, the infrastructure and the equipment is because if you're not prepared for the war if you don't get enough cryptographic material for your radios to feed into them to have secure communications they're not going to work they're going to shut down and that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing them struggle so so much with establishing secure communications and finally giving up and just using cell phones. So thank you for that. So, for example, in the in the sort of if I could maybe call it the second phase of the early parts of the war where we saw, you know, one day the news was there's a three kilometer column heading towards Kiev, and then there's a 12 kilometer and then all of a sudden it was a 40 mile column. And then, and, and we were, I, as a layman, I'm sitting there going, holy shit, they're just going to roll over Kiev. And of course that didn't happen. How much, uh, Dimitri, do you think the uh, digital savvy, if you could call it that, of the Ukrainians played uh, a role in having them be able to, in this example, protect the capital? I don't think that much. And, and I think that convoy was misunderstood. There was never a 40 mile convoy. It was multiple uh, battalion tactical groups uh, operating in various locations along that road. And Mike Kaufman, one of the premier Russian military analyst uh, who I have often on my podcast uh, speaks very eloquently to that. So you have to be really, really careful when you're consuming news about this conflict because both sides, Russians and the Ukrainians, are engaging in massive amounts of propaganda. So you have to take everything you see with a grain of salt and, and appreciate that you know, Ukrainians are fighting for their survival, obviously, so they're going to use every advantage they have, including the information media, to push out their message and 
that message is not always truthful or sometimes embellished. And you just have to take that into account um, when, when you're evaluating what's truly going on. And obviously the Russians are lying through their teeth nonstop as well. So a lot of the analysis that I see uh, about this war is very shallow or often even incorrect because people are just uh, mindlessly consuming uh, the propaganda that's being put out by one side or the other. And it's important to go much deeper and actually appreciate what's going on. But look, uh, you know, in their fight for Kiev, they have really uh, struggled with logistics. They've struggled with um, tactics. One of the most amazing videos that I saw uh, of this whole war was that ambush of the tank column in Bravari, just north of Kiev, a uh, suburb of Kiev, when you may recall, there was this tank column that was heading down the street. All them, all the tanks bunched up together, and suddenly the Ukrainians are du- directing artillery fire guided by some of their surveillance drones overhead against this convoy and destroying a whole bunch of tanks, including the, the commander of the unit there, or the regimental commander, killing him. And in talking to some of the U.S. military folks that, that I talked to in the Marine Corps and the Army, they literally told me just watching that video caused them heart palpitations because seeing tanks bunched up together like this with no defensive zone around them is sort of 101 basic tactics that no one in the U.S. military would ever execute, right? They're saying, where are the sergeants that are screaming at them? Disperse, disperse. Don't bunch up together. Don't present yourself as a, as a target. This is not even sort of general officer level failures of strategy. This is the most basic thing that every infantryman and woman in the United States military knows because it's been drilled into them time and time again. And when you see them fail at those types of basics, you realize just how unprepared they are as a military, how, yes, they have a lot of equipment, some of very advanced, but the training is really lacking. And, you know, one of the things that we don't appreciate enough, I think, is how the biggest advantage of the US military is not even our technological dominance, although it's an important part of it, but how we train like we fight, even harder than we fight. And we do that constantly. And virtually no one else in the world, including many of our allies, including Europeans, by the way, do that to that the same extent and how that is absolutely essential to our success. And it's not that we always do things perfectly and we don't make mistakes, but it is such a huge advantage for us. And you now see the Russians just failing at the most basic things, and that has caused them so much problems in their ability to execute this plan and why they failed in the battle for Kiev, why they failed in the battle for the North, and uh, why it's going to be very tough for them to succeed even in this more limited engagement that they're now fighting in the Donbass. Very interesting. Thousand questions off of that. Uh, One, many people uh, overestimated Russia's capability, believed the the propaganda. This was going to be three days, five days. Kiev was going to fall. Zelensky was going to was going to, you know, do what the leadership in Afghanistan did and the whole thing was going to crumble. And of course, that hasn't happened. So clearly much of the world gave the Russian uh, military too much credit. Would that be a fair statement, Dmitry? I think that most people did not expect the Russians to do as poorly as they did in this war. But most keen observers and you know, uh, John Petraeus is, is a close friend of mine and, and uh, is, is uh, involved in uh, our 
Silverado Policy Accelerator, so I talked to him often about this, and he was dead on, as many others were, that this would be a really, really hard mission. Look, even if this was the United States invading Ukraine, again, second largest country in Europe, people fighting for their lives, uh, armed with uh, really capable weapons like javelins and, and laws from Britain and others, we would run into huge problems, right? And our ability to take over that country would be in serious, serious doubt if we were trying to do that. And obviously you've seen some of the challenges we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan over the years. We would do much better than the Russians. We would establish air supremacy. We would not be doing stupid things like they're doing in terms of trying to conduct an airborne assault on, on hostile airport and not back it up with sufficient force to hold it. But taking cities is not easy, right? And we have seen that in the fights for Fallujah and Mosul that we have engaged in over the years and how hard it is and the, the casualties that you suffer and the devastation that it brings to infrastructure. And we're much, much better at it than the Russians. And it's still incredibly hard. So I think a lot of smart observers knew that this would be a very big challenge and that they didn't have enough troops to take over the country. And the whole strategy was based on exactly what you said, that Zelensky would flee and that the Ukrainian forces would collapse like um, the Afghanistan army did in the taking over of, Ta of Kabul by the Taliban. Once that didn't happen, you know, the whole strategy went out the window and they had no plan B. And that's what happened. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I am not a geopolitical military expert, far from it. But as a fight fan, this may sound completely insane, but as a fight fan, watching the Klitschko brothers fight seemed to me to be a pretty strong indication if they were emblematic of some percentage <laughs> of the Ukrainians, this was going to be a big problem. Absolutely. And, you know, most people that were looking at this also said, uh, including myself, that when it comes to Western Ukraine in particular, that you have people that have terrain advantage because Western Ukraine is not Eastern Ukraine. It's not sort of flat and uh, with very little uh, tree cover that you, particularly in, in deep Western Ukraine, you have mountains um, that can be used for uh, strategic defense and uh, can be used to launch insurgencies and support insurgencies. You obviously have the supply routes from Poland and other neighboring countries that can be used to resupply weapons, and that this would be an enormous challenge for the Russians, and one that they would not be able to succeed with uh, the forces that they had. The entire strategy relied on the Ukrainians surrendering. And uh, look, you know, it wasn't a, an insane strategy in that they had seen that in Afghanistan. Putin famously saw Yanukovych, the pro-Russian president, uh, flee in 2014, even though he still had control over his security forces in the military. Putin was outraged, we know about that, saying, why is this coward fleeing? Why is he not continuing to uh, shoot uh, the Ukrainian people and, and, and do what I do, which is to suppress any popular uprisings? And he had that view of the Ukrainians in general. Zelensky was derided uh, in Russian media as a comedian, as an actor, as someone who is not really running the country, but as a puppet of the oligarchs and so forth. And they had the view that this guy's going to flee and that they can walk into Kiev in three days and take it. And by the way, like if that had happened, if, if Zelensky had fleed, you know, who knows what would happen, uh, right? That would have been such a demoralizing thing for the Ukrainian military. Who knows if they would have continued that initial fight. Uh, but obviously he didn't. He ended up being this courageous hero of the free world, 
that stayed in fight. You know, his famous words to the West in the initial days was, uh, I don't need a ride when everyone was encouraging him to flee. I need ammo. And uh, that, I think, was the defining moment of this war when Russia truly lost it. The other one, of course, and I, I just saw this recently. I'm sure you saw this. Apparently, there's a stamp now in the Ukraine that says uh, Russian warship fuck off. <laughs> did I yeah. did, did you hear that as well? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a stamp of a soldier that's uh, flipping the bird to the Russian warship. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that that's one of the other elements of, of the really, really successful information warfare campaign that the Ukrainians had uh, executed here. Uh, by the way, that Russian warship that um, was uh, involved in that Snake Island episode early in the war was the Moskva cruiser, the flagship of the Black Sea Navy that the Ukrainians have now sunk. So they have more than repaid uh, for the uh, uh, losses that uh, Moskva uh, had inflicted on the Ukrainians on that island. But even that episode was emblematic of their successes because if you recall, what happened in that episode is that the cruiser approached that island uh, with the defenders of that island and and um, told them to surrender. And they said, Russian warship F off. Um, and and the, the message from the Ukrainians was that all the defenders had died uh, a heroic death uh, after that um, episode. And it turns out that some of them may have died, but uh, a number of them actually did end up being taken prisoner and were later on exchanged uh, for Russian prisoners of war. So, um, and obviously that doesn't take away from their heroism and, and, and their actions in the valiant defense of their country, but uh, not quite uh, what initially the Ukrainians were putting out about uh, uh, the nature of that battle. Uh, uh, so, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, Dimitri. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, you know, my point is that we just have to be very cognizant of the fact that the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, for their for their country, for their freedom, and they're going to use all uh, elements at their disposal, including sometimes embellishing the truth to make sure that they continue getting support from the West and uh, admiration of the West. And, and uh, if you want to truly understand what's going on, you have to dig much deeper. Yes. Now, if the Western world sort of overestimated the Russian military, are we also overestimating Russia's cyber uh, attack capability? I don't think we're overestimating their cyber attack capabilities because they have demonstrated time and time again their proficiency in infiltrating networks, doing really complex operations, achieving effects. Uh, but we may be overestimating what one can do in cyber, whether you're the Russian military or U.S. military or anyone else. And the reality is that it's really hard to inflict permanent damage in cyberspace, particularly if you're attacking IT systems. Yes, you can take down networks, you can wipe computers, but you could also rebuild those networks very quickly and rebuild those computers. And by the way, the Ukrainians are probably the best in the world at that because they've had eight years of experience of being attacked constantly in cyberspace with some of these disruptive attacks and have learned how to rebuild networks at a, at a flip of a, of a switch almost. And it gets into a little bit of a different situation when it comes to so-called OT networks, operational technology networks. Those are the things that control physical processes. These are the things you may have in a refinery that control uh, the chemical processes in that refinery or the, the computers, um, the so-called programmable logic controllers that control the motors and production facilities. And if you are able to get to those networks and modify code that's running on them, you can actually cause 
physical damage and explosions potentially that can uh, even cause loss of life in, in some extreme cases. So that becomes a little bit different. But when it comes to traditional sort of IT-based attacks, okay, you can wipe data, you can uh, you know shut down a machine, but you can't make it physically blow up. And uh, at the end of the day, I can just reload the operating system, reload the software, and back up and running. It's it's called redundancy in the IT business, yes? <laughs> redundancy, recovery, backups, all of those things become really, really important um, in actually uh, having resilient networks that that are able to sustain even very complicated attacks, even from top tier adversaries like Russia. Yes. Now, if if I could, and if you don't want to go here, just kick me under the table. I'd like to talk maybe a little bit about you personally, because, um, of course, you're an American, but like myself, you're a naturalized American, if I understand correctly, uh, originally from Russia. Yes. Yes, correct. I was born in Moscow. So, so the first question I have for you, Dimitri, is, you know, we had Gary Kasparov on the podcast a while ago before the war. Uh, and as I'm sure you're very aware, he's very vocal against uh, Putin for for very long time here. And I asked him about his personal safety. And so I'm curious, you know, do you have concerns given your background and given how vocal you are? Well, look, I, I, I am... Uh... Not like Gary. Gary obviously is uh, very much focused on uh, taking down Putin and establishing democratic governance in Russia. I, I'm not really focused on that. I'm focused on the security of this country, which is my where, where my allegiance lies. And look, I um, believe that we need a strong defense here at home. We need to confront Russia where our interests are critical. And, uh, you know, in this war in Ukraine, I do believe that we cannot allow them to succeed in taking over a sovereign European country and committing war crimes that is uh, essential to our uh, principles and, and our interests, frankly. But I'm also not a believer in that we have to poke Russia everywhere and uh, be provocative and, and focus on regime change. So I'm not in that camp. I'm in the camp of let's make this country as strong as it possibly can be and uh, project that strength uh, around the world, but not be overly provocative when we do so and not create unnecessary tension when we don't need to. Um, and that is not an argument for appeasement. That is an argument for strongly confronting adversaries where it truly matters, but not you know, going around the world starting wars uh, when we don't need to. So, so I, I'm not necessarily in, in the camp that uh, you know, a lot of people that have come out of Russia and that still view themselves essentially as Russian and I'm sure Gary would one day want to come back to a democratic Russia if that uh, such a thing occurs and, and um, potentially be involved in, in its politics. That is not me. Uh, you know, I'm an American through and through. I've left Russia a very long time ago as a child and uh, have no plans to come back no matter what that country is going to look like. I see. Thank you. Are you surprised that if, if the if what we're being told is true, and if it's not, please tell me, that the sort of opinions in Russia have shifted pretty dramatically over the course of the war so far, and now a huge percentage of the Russian population supports the war. A, to the best of your knowledge, is that true? And B, are you surprised that it happened if it happened? Yes, I, I do think it's true. Obviously, anytime you're dealing with polls in a uh, authoritarian, and really now a totalitarian government like the one that exists in Russia, you always have to be circumspect about it. But based on just my own interactions with people and what I'm seeing, uh, I, I do suspect that anywhere from 65, 70, maybe even 80% of the population does support the war and does support Putin. 
and the prosecution of the swarm. And, and I'm not surprised by that because one, you have the natural effect that takes place in any country where you go to war, that there's a rallying around the, 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 the leader and the flag um, and uh, you know support for the troops that uh, you see in lots and lots of countries. Two, obviously the propaganda is immense. There's now no independent voices in Russia. So if you're being told that you're fighting Nazis day in, day out, uh, you're going to believe it, and uh, many do. And uh, also, I think the sanctions have had the opposite effect, perhaps, of what was intended. Not sure if it was intended this way, but we now know that sanctions, when instituted on the country, actually tend to unite people in opposition to the sanctions and to the, the people that are imposing them. So many Russians do believe that the whole world is against them now, that the diplomatic and economic um, isolations that they're suffering means that they have no one to rely on but their dear leader, Vladimir Putin. And you're seeing a natural consolidation of support around him. Um, I don't think it will last. And if you look at 2014, when you took Crimea, you also saw his ratings spike into the 80s uh, back then. Uh, and a few years later, when people's uh, euphoria uh, dissipates and they start thinking more about the daily realities of their life, which is going to be very, very miserable for Russia for a very long time because of these economic measures that have been put in place. That's when the ratings do come down eventually. And uh, that's going to happen with, with Putin as well. So you think his his day in the uh, being this popular are numbered? Oh, there's no doubt about that. That doesn't necessarily mean that his days in power are numbered. That's a different thing entirely. And I do think that he's a secure in his hold on power in Russia as he has ever been, eliminating effectively all oppositions to uh, all opposition to his regime and uh, instituting internal crackdowns even to make sure that anyone that as much as squeaks a position that is uh, against uh, the governments uh, is uh, going to be put in jail or worse. So I think, uh, unfortunately, he's going to be around for a very long time, most likely. But also, it's important to be understanding of the nature of the government in Russia and the nature of the position of the population in Russia, that even if Vladimir Putin were to die tomorrow or to be replaced uh, in a palace coup, that whoever comes next is not going to revert most of the policies uh, that he has instituted. Those policies are popular. Those policies are believed in by many of the Russian people. So the idea that you're going to get uh, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington emerge in Russia in the coming years uh, is, is a fantasy. Even Alex Alexander Navalny is uh, at best probably has support of maybe 10% of the population, mostly in the cosmopolitan areas of Russia. So he couldn't win, a, even if it were a free election in Russia, I don't believe he would win, right? Much more likely that you would get sort of a traditional strong man from the so-called Siloviki faction in Russia emerge and uh, you know succeed in, in that country. And uh, the policies that we, of course, object to, like the policies in Ukraine, uh, would not necessarily be reversed. Um, it's important to, to re uh, be reminded of history, by the way, that in 1979, when Soviet Union at the time invaded Afghanistan, that was a Leonid Brezhnev policy. He had passed away a few years later. And that policy of continuing the war in Afghanistan continued through Andropov, who replaced Brezhnev, then Chernenko, who replaced Andropov, and even through the time of Gorbachev until he ultimately pulled out in 1988, a number of years after coming into power. So these policies are not easy to change. And, you know, if uh, we need to stop 
thinking of Russia as just being about Vladimir Putin. The reality is that those policies are broadly popular and him getting out of the picture is not going to reverse those policies. I, I appreciate you saying that. I think a lot of people in this country forget, you know, the United States has not had a great history of regime change. And the other history lesson here, at least for me, and maybe you'll tell me if this is overly simplistic, but in order for Mandela to happen, you got to have de Klerk. And de Klerk allowed him to get out of prison. De Klerk allowed for those elections to happen and opened the door. And, and he was, quote unquote, the bad guy. And so from what I hear you saying, there's no willingness in the existing power structure in Russia, forget Putin for a second, to open the door to a new, you know, a new, more democratic, new, more Western approach. That's what I think I hear you saying. Yeah, I mean, it's not even about democracy. You can have democracy in Russia, but you're not going to be necessarily happy with the result and the policies of the people that would be elected, even in a free and fair election. So um, the Russians view Ukraine now very antagonistically. They view the West and NATO and America uh, as uh, enemies. And that won't be reversed, even if uh, you know a new leader is elected through a completely free and fair election. Yeah. Now, um, before I let you go, how does this thing play out, Dimitri? So, you know, it's always hard to make predictions, but uh, I've been out there very publicly, of course, on Twitter and elsewhere making those predictions. Well, and you called the ball in December that this war was going to happen. You were very early, right? right? Early. You took some yes, heat for yes. it at the time, if I remember, but you were right. No, no one believed it. Right. Yeah. And so you do have a little bit of a crystal ball. <laughs> 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 well, we'll see, we'll see if it continues. So I will continue making the foolish uh, strategy of making predictions that could be uh, proven false with time. But here's what I think. I think we're going to see an end to major offensive operations in the coming month. I think the Russians are at the point of exhaustion from their manpower and logistics that they can't continue this for much longer. They may or may not succeed in taking the Donbass. I think it'll be very hard for them, but you know, there's an outside chance that they may be able to take more of territory. Obviously, they've pretty much taken Mariupol already, except for that one area of the steel plant that Putin just said, we're not actually going to take, we're just going to isolate it and let them start to death. Also, war crime, and you do have potentially hundreds of women and children at that steel plant as well. They have the area in the south, Kherson, and there's some indications that they're going to do another fake referendum like they had done in Donetsk and Luhansk back in 2014 to proclaim the Kherson National Republic. And uh, this is going to be an alliance with, with Russia. And then you will really have a corridor to Crimea, uh, land-based corridor that uh, I think is strategically important to them, going all the way from Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, and, and down into Crimea through those areas. And then I think he can declare victory by saying that he has demilitarized Ukraine by destroying much of its uh, equipment, military equipment, and killing of course, lots, lots and uh, lots of members of the Ukrainian military and probably most importantly, destroying much of the industrial production capacity in Ukraine. He can claim that he denazified, quote unquote, Ukraine by destroying this Azov battalion, those fighting in Mariupol um, that has been sort of the lightning rod for Russia, claiming that there are Nazis in Ukraine. And um, while there are some right wing personalities that have been involved in that battalion, I think it has been cleaned up uh, for the most part. And after all, there are neo-Nazis in every military, unfortunately, these days, uh, not least of all in Russia, by the way, who have literally 
memorabilia from Germany, uh, Nazi Germany on their, on their sleeves in some of the cases that, from the videos we've seen. And uh, he can claim that he's, you know, protected the, the people in the Donbass by taking more of that territory, certainly Mariupol at, at a minimum. And not to say nothing, of course, that he has killed most of those people that he said he was trying to protect. But, you know, this is going to be part of his propaganda and uh, sort of try to freeze the conflict and uh, essentially expand on what was going on since 2014, where you did have a war going on between Russia and Ukraine, effectively, that Russia was not admitting there was fighting. But we know that there were units, Russian military units that were fighting in Ukraine, uh, but now expanded across a much bigger region. Uh, I don't think the war will end because I think the Ukrainians will keep fighting and you will see periodic shelling, missile strikes, airstrikes, and so forth, but probably no major ground offensives continue. And that can continue for years. And Russia can declare victory. Ukraine can declare victory because they have survived as a country and uh, have prevented Russia from taking over. And uh, you will also have, of course, the West declare victory that we have stopped Russia from taking over Ukraine. And they'll all be somewhat correct in that uh, all of them have accomplished something. In the long run, Russia will lose because economically they have suffered a huge price uh, for, for this adventure in Ukraine. But, um, you know, things are also unfortunately very bleak for Ukraine because Ukraine is losing probably about $5 billion to $10 billion a month right now in terms of its economic potential and the cost of this war, having mobilized the entire country, having been prevented from exercising most of its economic activities, having been blocked off from using its ports, uh, port of Odessa and, of course, the port of Mariupol that is now in control of the Russians. So uh, they'll be in a really, really tough position economically for years to come as a result of this devastation. Hopefully, of course, they'll get aid from the West, but uh, it's going to be very, very tough for them uh, to uh, rebuild the economy and and, and uh, particularly with this conflict still going on, uh, even at a low level. So unfortunately, that's what I see going forward is that this is not going to end neatly. Most wars don't. And the Russians can continue sustaining at a low level for for decades. So thank you for that. So so let me th- see if I can understand. You think maybe the major conflict is over in as much as a month? And then essentially we have an ongoing conflict in, you know, what some people call the contested areas. And maybe they're somewhat akin to the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. And that that's where we ultimately land, Dimitri? Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, of course, the contested areas are huge because you're talking about the areas in the south, Kherson, Zaporozhye, the Donbass as well. Um, and the Ukrainians have no intention of letting the Russians keep it. They're going to keep harassing them. Um, hopefully the West will continue supplying them with weaponry, javelins, TB2 drones and the like that they can execute operations against the Russians. Um, the Russians will respond to them and uh the, uh, you know, you, you're going to have, unfortunately, people continue dying uh, and uh, atrocities continue to be committed. And uh, uh, it's going to be devastating for both sides of the conflict. Uh, of course, Russia is the invader and the aggressor here, but um, it won't be, unfortunately, I don't think uh, a good outcome for Ukraine either. Hmm. Anything else you want to touch on, Dmitry? Well, uh, you know, uh, thank you for mentioning my podcast. It's uh, Geopolitics Decanted by Silverado. So we, we have a weekly uh, dive in on some of these geopolitical issues. A lot of them right now focused on Russia-Ukraine conflict, going deep into the military analysis, the 
strategic political analysis, but we also cover other issues. We recently did a podcast on Iran and uh, the nuclear program that people have stopped paying attention to, but obviously a major issue right Legendary now. Legendary episode. <laughs> Thank you. As Iran has continued its path towards a nuclear weapon, uh, and we'll cover China, we'll cover North Korea as well in, in the coming episodes. So hope people will listen. And again, thanks for having me and giving me the platform to talk about these issues in much more greater detail than you can in much of the traditional media. Well, thank you, Dimitri. I, I really do want to applaud you and your guests. Uh, your podcast is legendary. And the thing to me about what you're doing in the podcast domain, it stands in such stark contrast to the traditional media because you and your guests do get into it. And uh, as a listener, I got to tell you, I really appreciate your work and I deeply appreciate this time. And you are welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Well, there he is, the legendary Dmitry Alperovich. And if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please share it with the people that you uh, respect, admire, and love in your life. Most podcast players, the podcast app you're listening to this on, have a share button. Why not hit that share button right now? And also, please know we deeply appreciate your shares on social media. Also, again, want to underscore Dmitry's legendary podcast. It's called Geopolitics Decanted. By Silverado. That's geopolitics decanted by Silverado, or just search his name, Dmitry Alperovich podcast, and you'll find it. It's incredible. And you know, it's another great example of the delta between legacy media and podcasting. Uh, fantastic work, Dimitri. All right. We would like to thank you. Of course, we appreciate your time and attention. Our friends at Hallow App are the first real relationship app. Real friends only. Real sharing. Real relationships. And no censorship. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com. That's HalloApp.com. Or search Hallow App on your app store of choice uh, on your mobile phone. My friends at Malibu Milk are the leaders in whole plant organic flax milk. That's Malibu Milk with a Y.com. I have it almost every day. It is the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. And when you go to MalibuMilk.com, uh, put in different 15 for your 15% discount on checkout. Also, Category Pirate's number one bestseller, the Category Design Toolkit, 15 Frameworks for Creating and Dominating Your Niche is available right now on Amazon.com. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical awesomeness and Lockhead.com are built by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Show notes by GM Simon. The brothers Bobis, RJ, and EX do our web development, and Cedric Biros is our handsome and talented graphic and web designer. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets of the wind. And uh, we record these episodes on the internet on squadcast.fm. That's squadcast.fm. If you must email us, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. Please teach dialogue, spread podcasts, not viruses. Remember, the best defense is a strong offense. Eddie Van Halen was right. Listen to Social Distortion. To all our friends in the Ukraine, we are sending uh, thoughts, prayers, and money. Uh, one of our favorite nonprofits is Doctors Without Borders, also known as Médecins Sans Frontières, UNICEF uh, USA. And in the show notes, we have CNBC's list of charities 
uh, that you can support who are trying to make a difference in the Ukraine. Go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode for a list of charities that will make a difference in the Ukraine. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, me, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.